murder, divorce, drugs. Our courts are full of stories, scary, sad, and hilarious. Most are tales stranger than fiction. These are true law stories, brought to you by VideoCaseStory.com, the ultimate resource for customer and client video stories. Welcome to True Law Stories. I'm Garlic, and today we're in Orlando, actually at a law office, and we're going to talk about some crazy criminal defense, criminal prosecution stories here in Orlando. I'm with Michael Pinnell of the Pinnell Law Firm. Michael, thanks for being up. Glad to be here. I, thanks for having me. So, I mean, we're going to talk about a thing gone bad. We're going to talk about, um, you know, you, you have a bunch of stories, but I want to talk a little bit about how you got into law because that's pretty interesting. Oh, sure. Well, the reason I wanted to be a lawyer is because I, you know, went through when I was young, the way I perceived things is my mom, my parents went through a pretty nasty divorce. And I thought, you know, if I could devote my life to defending somebody, to sort of being somebody's voice, uh, to prevent what, what I perceived to be a bad thing that happened to my mom for somebody else. And okay. So I, I was just sort of going home on that since I was 12. And it wasn't until I was in college. Um, here in downtown Orlando, I had an internship, and across the way were the federal public defenders. And I, like most people, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. I was already geared up to go to law school. All my high school and college at that point was like set in that direction. Uh-huh. But like I'd see these guys, like either in the bathroom or in the parking garage or whatever, and I'd say those things like, you know, how do you sleep at night? You know, or, 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 or would you defend that person if you knew they were guilty? You know, and all these questions. Of course, these guys are like senior criminal defense. They're like federal defense attorneys. Yeah. They're looking at me like this kid's an idiot. But there were, <laughs> there were a couple of them that really took the time to explain that work and what it means to be a criminal defense attorney. And one of them even took me into his office and 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 all of this other stuff and just kind of explained, hey, this is the work of we are the only thing in between that person. And, you know, the government and, and just the machine that wants to put them in prison and they don't necessarily have the whole story. And oftentimes they can't even prove their own case. And sometimes the person's actually innocent, which is like the worst situation. So it was through conversations with them that I'm like, you know, this is definitely this is I don't know of another field of law where you can be more of an advocate for an individual than in this field. And so I devoted my focus to that from then on. Nice. And so you went. Where'd you go to school? UCF for undergrad. Go Knights. <laughs> and University of Florida for law school. Nice. And then you left and became a, pros- or a prosecutor? Well, during it was during the um, – when I was at school at UF was when the Trayvon Martin shooting happened, the George Zimmerman case happened. And so I – back in, yeah, 2012. Um, and so I saw the lawyer on TV that was handling that case. And I, like most people, were like, man, you didn't – just had a one sided view on it, but I saw him and I'm like, I want to be with that guy. Whoever that guy is, I want to be like that. So I sought him out. His office was actually four houses down, coincidentally, from where we're sitting right now. <laughs> and I went there on like a Saturday night, you know, and like found him, you know, <laughs> and uh, my house was flooded. That's why I was down here from Gainesville in the first place. And, and uh, I said, look, you know, I want to work with you. And he let me and the rest of the sort of history. And from there, so I worked with him for a couple of years and then I went and became a public defender. Nice. And I mean, how you were a public defender for a little bit of time. It was only a year. I, I would have stayed a lot longer, except for the fact that I, I had to leave when I did in order to take a, a, a particular case that I was really passionate about. And the reason is because the public defender's office had asserted a conflict on that case because they, in my opinion, didn't want any part in it because it was mm-hmm. really kind of a politically charged case. It was attempted first degree premeditated murder of a law enforcement officer times three in Brevard County, where I was working at the time. So no one really wanted to touch this. 
And I, as a public defender, represented the, uh, what ended up happening is my guy was an uncle that had taken in his adult niece to live with him. And the adult niece, and, and I'll tell the story, but the bottom line is the niece was also charged with a crime, some mm-hmm. misdemeanors. And they asked me to represent her on that because of my prior work with some higher profile stuff. So I did represent her. But then when it came down to the public defender's office representing their main guy, they're like, oh, we already represented somebody. There's a conflict. But I was the attorney that, in fact, handled the, I was the conflict. But the PD's probably rightfully declined the case. So I had a choice. Do I jump out on a limb? Uh, I didn't have a, a, a law practice, you know, or anything like that, and take this case for virtually no money and pray and hope for the best because I believe in it? Or do I stay in the comfortable job at the PD's and I chose to jump? That's... Although the public defender's office was like my favorite job I've ever had. I love that job. And before we get into that whole story, I, I, talk about being a public defender because most people don't understand that's like, that's one of the few places that you actually go to trial, right? Oh, yeah. I, you know, the public defender's office and state attorney's office, if you want to be a trial attorney, you've just got to go there. I mean, if you come out of law school, you know, you might have a very well-paying job, like a super, you know, high-profile firm or something like that, but you're not going to be in the courtroom. I mean, people say I'm doing litigation, but, you know, I, I, what we're really talking about is transactional stuff, and yeah. and we're not we're certainly not talking about picking juries. Not not a year out of law school, not a two years out of law school. I, a lot of my friends, gosh, we graduated eight years ago. A lot of my friends have never had a trial still, you know, and, yeah, and they probably never will. Yeah, because you think of most attorneys, I mean, you think of personal injury, you think all these people are going to trial all the time, and the fact is, they're not. The good personal injury trial attorneys got their trial experience because they were a public defender or a prosecutor at some point. Yeah. You know, or they were in, like, a, a very, very, you know, certain personal injury firms go to trial all the time, but they have thousands and thousands of cases. For the most part, if you're coming out of law school, you're probably not going to get some trial experience unless you're in that very rare type of personal injury firm that's going to trial all the time. Or, because most cases settle, right? Or the state, either a prosecutor or a public defender. So, yeah, I was a PD for one year. Like I said, I mean, I would stay, but I, I couldn't stay. I had to do this case. Yeah, and, and so tell me what the, what happened in that case. How, how did it, like, tell me the circumstances. So my guy was retired to Florida from Michigan. He was a retired GM mechanic. Um, he moonlighted at the port doing, like, nighttime security or whatever. He was running a house in Port St. John in Brevard County, had a niece that was going through some uh, very hard ways, and, and she was struggling with substances and things like that. So my guy's family basically asked him to take her in, and since he lived there, and, and he was worried about it, but he did take her in. And she's, by the way, a, a, a very good-hearted, wonderful person that I've gotten to know as well. <clears throat> but this was the circumstance. So they lived across the street from a higher up in the Brevard County Sheriff's Office who noticed that there had been traffic coming in and out of the house. That guy tasked the special investigations unit of the Brevard County Sheriff's Office to basically keep an eye on the house and and see what you can see. So, of course, the special investigations unit, which, by the way, I found out isn't much more than just people who are tasked with vice crimes like prostitution, certain drug things. They don't have, like, special training. They're just... Not the guys, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so they, you know, and they get to wear undercover clothes and, yeah. and, and stuff like that. And some of them are really, really good and do seek out, out other training, but others are not. And so it just is what it is. So they keep an eye on the house, and at one point they realize, okay, the girl in here is is prostituting, or so they think. So they set up a sting. They uh, 
pretend to, they contact her pretending to be somebody looking for that service and meet her at a CVS. And when she gets out of the car, they are like, freeze, police. And they, you know, arrest her and it's no big deal. So it's a secondary misdemeanor solicitation. She doesn't resist or anything like that. Well, I'm exact, almost a month to the day later, they've got a new guy in the special investigations unit. They say, hey, we know her already. Her name is, you know, Mary. We're like, we know her. So if, why don't you just, you know, start talking to her? Maybe we can get her to come to this hotel that we're at or whatever. She's a good one for you to learn on, basically. So he initiates a text conversation. This conversation goes on for like three hours. She says she doesn't, she's not going to go over to where they are. And so the guy she's talking to, again, of course, she's not thinking she's talking to a cop. Says, okay, we'll go over to, I'll go over to your house. So she says, okay. He gets there at 930 in an unmarked car. He himself is wearing a black T-shirt and jeans. Um, and he decides, I'm going to bring two other, I need to, I'm going to bring two other people from the special investigations unit with me. One was the guy who was telling him what to do in the first place, who had been on the unit for a while, who subsequently got fired in disgrace from the Brevard County Sheriff's Office in a use of force incident, by the way. And another guy was who I consider to be the innocent, one of the innocent, you know, an innocent person in this whole thing. He is a good man. He ended up getting shot and almost died and had nothing to really to do with this thing. He was just going his backup for doing his job. And they show up in an unmarked car. The two of those guys are in black clothes um, you know, one guy's wearing cargo shorts, the other one jeans. They're wearing plain clothes, but they are wearing a vest that says sheriff, but it's black and their shirts are black and they say sheriff, but they're non-reflective. Otherwise they're wearing like baseball yeah. caps. Yeah. <laughs> the first guy texts, I'm here. She goes, okay, come in. So he walks up to the front door. It's got like a covered, like six by six porch with a covering, right? He knocks on the door. She opens it. She's inside the house. And she turns around and says, come in and like go to lead her, him to her room. He doesn't. He goes, no, no, no. And grabs, reaches into the house, grabs her arm and yanks her out of the house. So in her mind, she's thinking this creep off the internet who's here for sex is now kidnapping me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, talk about scary. Yeah. Yeah. So she starts screaming like, with all that she's got, she grabs hold of the inside of the door jam. Yes, he's pulling her out. He never lets her go, like ever. Like eventually, when there's gunfire, but yeah. So she's screaming for uncles in the back room watching Jeopardy. You know, uh, he's got like meatloaf, getting ready to like eat. You know, sitting <laughs> on his bed. Here's his niece. Her life's on the line. Yeah. He grabs his gun, comes out to the front door, and by now the two other guys. Um, one guy was standing in the in the in the, in the, basically the, the front yard. And another of the guys uh, came and also started assisting the first guy. So now there's two men dragging her into the night. My guy sees three shadows, basically. Um, two guys with her and her struggling and screaming for help and for his help. So he says, basically, what's going on here? And takes his gun, shoots it in the air as like a warning shot. But tragically, they all turn out to be undercover sheriff's deputies. So they throw her toward him. They all take different positions in the yard and all three of them simultaneously start unloading on my guy. who's like just standing like at the front porch under the little covering. So he now thinks the people that are kidnapping his niece are trying to kill him. Yeah, they are. Yeah. So he starts shooting back and a shootout happens. And it's crazy. It, one of the guys, you know, unloads his magazine, has a new one. He runs around. I mean, it's like a movie. But in the whole thing, my guy ends up getting shot twice. Like I said, one of the agents gets shot. And almost died. And even the niece got grazed once. 
Man, they're lucky. I mean, I, it's a it's a miracle that no one is dead. And it, it, certainly, it was a close call for yeah. for that agent. Um, oh my god, I know. And so, so my guy makes it into the house. It's a little confusing as to whether she like drags him in or he crawls in or what. But he's bleeding out. He's dying. Yeah. She calls nine one one. Bring it. She's screaming frantic. Bring an ambulance. People are shooting us. They still have no idea what the heck happened. Right? Yeah. They don't know. No idea. No. That's the police. And uh, at this point, the 911 dispatchers are getting the same distress calls from their guys saying, officer down, officer down. So it's very chaotic. And they don't send the ambulance to my guy. In fact, they try to coerce them to come out of the house so they, they can they try to trick them into getting arrested. All the guys dying. Oh, my God. So, I mean, obviously the ambulance came. Eventually. Eventually. Well, they had the ambulance, but they were loading the, uh, uh, you know, yeah. and, and they wanted to, uh, you know, obviously secure my guy. Look. In their minds, in all fairness, in their minds, they think my guy is a cop killer. He's drunk, yeah. you know, he knew, he must somehow knew they were cops and was shooting at them. But under the circumstances, of course, he didn't and couldn't. And neither did she. I mean, come on, she's the one calling down on one say, oh, my God, my yeah. husband shot. We need the police. We need ambulances. Let's yeah. Go. They really thought it was, it was the scariest night of all, I would imagine, all of their lives. But I know at least on my side, my guy's life. Oh my, well, yeah, I mean, that's. Scary story for anyone. Scary story of life. Hopefully, right? Yeah, yeah. I hope it doesn't get worse than that. But then they turned around and created this narrative that my guy was a pimp and that he was somehow profiting off of her uh, activities, which turned out is not true at all. Like yeah. it wasn't. In fact, he was losing money because she wasn't even paying him rent. Like he was just kind of doing her a favor, and he got roped into all this. But they painted him out to be a pimp who knew that they were cops, and he would go out of his way to try to kill them rather than her get arrested for a second degree misdemeanor. <laughs> Which makes no sense. Yeah. And so, so they, they, he became, I mean, he became a pariah in the, in the, in the um, community and all that. And it was, it was horrifying. And he, they, he spent three, uh, he was, this prosecution went on for four years. He spent three of those in jail. That's crazy. Uh huh. And they, I mean, they went hard. And, and that's what people don't realize. I don't think about this is like, we see all this stuff on the news, right? And you immediately think that guy's guilty. Right, right. Of course. I mean, and the, and even if he's not, then the life's ruined. After he, I mean, so tell me about the trial. How did that go? So in Florida, we have something called pretrial immunity. If you are asserting defense, self-defense or defense of others, or if you're using deadly force to prevent the imminent commission of a forcible felony, those are really the three options. You can't, people under, misunderstand stand your ground and they think like, yeah, hey, I'm standing my ground. I'm just going to shoot somebody. <laughs> it's like, no, it's first of all, you, it's got to be reasonable. Your use of force has to be reasonable to prevent the imminency of one of three things, the imminency of a commission of a forcible felony, imminent great bodily harm or death to yourself, or imminent great bodily harm or death to another. I had one case where my guy uh, pulled up, he was going to, it was basically, it was going to be like a misdemeanor level marijuana transaction. He pulls up, the three guys surround the car, they pull a gun on him, threaten to kill him, and my guy, freaking out, pulls a gun, he's got a gun on him. And he pulls a gun and they see it and they start to run away and he shoots about one second after their backs are turned. And the question is, is it self-defense or did he shoot too late? Even though they're the ones that pulled a gun. Yeah. The marijuana thing is kind of irrelevant. That's yeah, that point. Point, yeah. they, they, they had a gun pulled on him and my guy's got no criminal history. He was like a young kid. And, but he's got a gun on him. Well, it was their backs were turned. Is it self-defense or not? These cases can turn on a dime. So it's got to be imminent in order to trigger it. But the point is, we have a pretrial hearing provision to determine whether you legally acted in self-defense in Florida. 
it's part of the stand your ground law. I just hate that term. Yeah. But because it's just so misunderstood and misused. But it's really a pretrial immunity hearing where you basically get to show the burden used to be on the defense, but then it shifted to the state, which became an issue in our case. But you have a hearing. It's like a full on trial in front of the judge. And the judge determines under the standard whether the person lawfully used deadly force or not. So all of these issues about self-defense, defense of others, and the imminent commission of a forcible felony were at play in this case, which is very, very rare. But think about it. It was. Yeah. And on top of that, the whole presumptions you get under the common law castle doctrine, because he was at his house. Yeah. So you're presumed if, you know, you're presumed to be acting lawfully in in your use of force, if you have reason to believe that someone had just broken into your house, which he did. All of these crazy things were like at play oh my in God. this one scenario, which is why we don't go breaking into people's houses without warrants at 930 at night on yeah. misdemeanors. Yeah. <laughs> which, by the way, was illegal for them to do anyway. You can't even do that because they didn't have a warrant. And so there's that. A misdemeanor hadn't occurred in their presence, so... You can't make the arrest in the first place, I'd argue legally. Yeah. And on top of that, they actually breached the threshold of the house, which is a warrantless entry. It was just six ways of Sunday. Messed up. But this is why, you know, because yeah. it's reasonable for a homeowner to think that something bad's happening. Yeah, you don't see badges. You don't see They didn't. And, yeah. and you know, like I said, that you guys did have the, the sheriff's markings, but they were in the front yard. It was really, really dark out there. Yeah. Like you couldn't even see. You couldn't make out anything. And so the one guy said that he pulled the guy in the plain clothes said he pulled his uh thing like a little chain like a badge out from under a shirt, but uh no one saw it. I yeah, mean, no he was wearing there. an Under Armour T-shirt and like dressed like a guy coming to have sex with a woman. So. Yeah, but at that point too, yeah, guns are out and you see. Uh, you know, it was, it was just it was really really tragic. But so we have this hearing and. It was determined that the law had changed where it was originally going to be up. We had it proved by preponderance of the evidence that he acted in self-defense. Very weird for a defendant to have to prove anything in any criminal case. It's usually the state that has to prove beyond reasonable doubt. But everything's weird with this immunity thing. But in the middle of our case going, not in the middle of us having a hearing, but like over the course of the years, the law changed and it sh- the burden actually shifted to the state having to prove um, uh that the person did not use self-defense. Um, and that's by a preponderance of the evidence standard. So um, the judge said that they were going to allow, the judge said they were going to go ahead and use the new standard. But then when we got there that morning, they said, no, 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 the, the, the burden is on you, defense. We, I disagree with the current, you know, what I said before in the current state of the law. So that became an appellate issue later. So we end up getting thrown into this. Do we even have this hearing or not? Because now the burden's on us. And we had been told it was going to be different, so it changes the order of how you examine witnesses. And then we were prohibited from, like, cross-examining witnesses, even though there were state witnesses, because we had to call them. It was a nightmare. It was crazy. But it went on for five days. And at the end of it, the judge denied it in a written order. And we thought long and hard about what to do. And we thought she was dead wrong. And we believed in the case, and we appealed it. And the appellate court said, okay, this was handled you know, all kinds of wrong and remanded it back for a new and granted what we wanted. Basically, they didn't give them immunity yet. They just said, you got, you did it wrong judge. And it needs to be you, he, the guy's entitled to a new immunity hearing, or you need to make findings on these two issues. One, it, and that's up to the parties. If us in the state said, we agree to allow the current hearing to stand. There needs to be findings on two issues. One, whether my guy knew there were law enforcement, because if he did, he's not entitled to immunity. He may be entitled to self-defense later, but not in this 
pretrial immunity, or whether he himself was using the home, to, whether he was engaged in criminal activity, because the judge didn't make findings on those things. So we agreed to allow the judge to do that. Judge comes back and makes findings that he didn't know there were law enforcement, but he was using the home to further criminal activity because he was aware of what his niece was doing. So then the day she came out with that order denying us again, I get an order from the appellate court saying, yo, Pinella, appeal her again. Like they on their own. Oh, wow. Said file an amended uh, appeal. So I was already going to, but I'm like, okay. So I did. And briefly, think about that logic, this whole thing. Three counts of attempted first degree premeditated murder of a law enforcement officer is now turning on whether my guy happened to know she was a prostitute. That's the whole thing is distilled down to, yeah, that, and that right there is determining whether he's completely innocent or exonerated or whether he goes to a jury trial and faces these murder charges. That one question, that's how complicated, that's why people, that's why people get the stand your ground law wrong. Yeah. Because there's so many nuances. Yeah, yeah so much to it. Yeah. So what happened? Uh, so we do that, <laughs> the, we do the appeal and I made these arguments and they're like, let's say that you've got a third, you know, a 15 year old kid who is upstairs in his room, smoking pot, doesn't have a medical marijuana card, and you know it, dad, and you're downstairs cooking burgers, right? Someone breaks into your house trying to burglarize you, puts a gun to your head. Are you allowed to act in self-defense because you are technically aware that someone else in your house is engaged in criminal activity? I mean, that's the argument, right? Yeah. That, like, somehow you're not allowed... The appellate court said, no, thank goodness. They said, that's a bridge too far. Because I'm engaged in criminal activity doesn't mean you are. Yeah. And because I might be doing the wrong thing doesn't mean that you now are unable to defend yourself or others under the law. So they they rule our way and grant him immunity straight up and say, release him. Wow. Like now, never to be heard from again. Like, oh. immunity done right now. Like, and they... Oh. And it's a, it's a written opinion and there's a lot of nuance to it. And yeah, of course they acknowledged that it was tragic and that it was law enforcement and they're not trying to say, you know, they weren't really like dogging them so much, but they're like, no, it was messed up. And the correct legal decision here is the guy's entitled to immunity. Yeah. I mean, the police, like anyone in any job, make mistakes. Sure. Sure. And, you know, and then you have adrenaline and all that stuff. And then you have stupid people. I mean, we, you have right. great people and you have stupid people at any job. Right. <laughs> um, I mean, they weren't expecting, you know, no, no one was expecting a guy to come out with a gun. But then again, what happens when, when you grab somebody, snatch somebody out of their house and they start you, screaming at a woman? You snatch you know? someone out of their house. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah, you don't, it didn't say, can we come in or? <laughs> it's just thank God somebody had the guts to do the right thing because it was, it was a very, you know, you've got the sheriff's office involved. You've got officers. Everyone. Down, you know, no one wants to say, even though everyone might, might be thinking, ah, oh, that guy was probably right. No one wants to be the person to have the, to take the stand and say, no, this is the correct legal decision. Yeah. But the appellate court did. They did it twice. That's amazing. What, how did it feel? What, what was the moment that you found that out? That he got the immunity, full immunity? And were you in the courtroom? I was in court somewhere else. Oh, wow. You know? No, like they, they, it's not like you're in the courtroom. Yeah, because it's appellate judges right? because, yeah, we're talking about trial and appellate, back to trial, back to appellate in this yeah. case. <clears throat> in what's called a petition for writ of prohibition, by the way. It's, an, it's called an extraordinary writ. So it's, it's an appeal of a lower court order pre-trial. So it's not even a regular appeal. It's considered an extraordinary writ. It's a whole other thing. So I would like, the way they do it is they just email it to you. It's like e-served. 
<laughs> I mean, they don't call you on the phone and say, like, you know, you like, want to come over and get an award. They just e-serve it like anything else. So I was, like, in court doing a something dumb, you know, like on a status hearing or something. And I get an email from the 50CA, and I'm like, because this would have been the second time. Which 50CA is the 50th? The 50th is your court of appeal. And, and so we are, it already happened to me once, and I was in court that time, too. And they came out with that awesome order and remanded it back. But this time, it's either going to be all or nothing. Yeah. So I looked at it, and I, 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 it doesn't say necessarily at the very top, but I looked at the first line. I could see, like, what I could see, like, from the first time without, like, reading it. I noticed it was, like, a long opinion, and it was very obvious that they granted it. Like, it was, like, something like, a person's home is their castle. It's, like, quoting some case from, like, 200 years ago, and I'm like, this looks like it's going our way (laughs) before I read it, you know? So, and then I I finished up quick what I was doing. I, I think I didn't even... Leave the courthouse. I think went to the hallway yeah. and read this. And I'm like, oh my! And I called the team. By the way, we had an awesome team. There's a veteran criminal defense homicide, one of the best uh, criminal defense attorneys in the country, named Don West, who agreed to be co-counsel with me on this. We never would have gotten here without him. Um, we had uh, other people like managing our media and, and 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 you know just sort of the narrative and helping me stay focused. Just an awesome team altogether, and then I ended up picking up a, a new employee who became my associate in the middle of all this, and she became instrumental in like helping write the appeals. So the the team was awesome. That's that's incredible. So I just share it with you, I'm like, guess what? Because it's after four years of yeah. like fighting this, for and this he, guy. he was still in jail. At that point. Co- coincidentally, a week earlier, I busted him out because it was looking like the appellate case was going to go our way, and there was a very ethical prosecutor who I happen to really like. That was one of the prosecutors on this case. And COVID was really big at the oh. time. And my guy was very, very sick. And he was in the jail still. So I went to the got to the prosecutor and I said, here's where we're at. And he understood because he saw what was going on with the legal stuff too. He wasn't even the one fighting the appeals. Like actually that goes to the, the attorney general's office. Yeah. So it wasn't even, but he saw where it was headed. And he's like, at this point, it, it's not the right thing to just keep this guy in jail. Yeah. Right now. Uh, so we were able to release him on a very, very small bond. So he get to Michigan to be with his family. So we were worried he was going to die. He was really sick. Oh. Um, and so that was really cool of him to stipulate. And then the judge granted it. So he got out about a week before he was exonerated and would have got out anyway. But, oh, man. And what was that call like when you told him? We It was a Zoom call. So this is the first time anyone heard about Zoom and all this stuff. It was like yeah. right in the middle of that. And uh, so we did a Zoom call, and I recorded it. I have it. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. It, I mean, he was just, he was overwhelmed. I think that he didn't, oh, you know. I mean, it's all over, right? Yeah. But, you know, it sucks because they took some of the best years of his life. Yeah. Um, right? I mean, he came yeah. here to retire. And he, it's happy, but it's not over for him. No, it's not over for him. It's it's not over for him. I, I, just, I imagine it's not over for a lot of these people. Yeah. Lives change forever. Just yeah. Like that. Yeah, that's what we think because we see these cases. You see it on TV, and it's like, oh, it's done. Boom, boom. Right? And and everything's fine. But it's not fine. No. It's not fine. I mean, my guy's still got limited mobility in his arm and, you know, blood clots and stuff. I know that I'm just really sincere when I talk about the other person that got shot because I just wish this never happened. And I know it wasn't him. Um, but he had serious health issues too. And, and, and everyone's gone away and they're like trying to rebuild their lives. One guy, like I said, one of the cops ended up getting fired. He, he was the main instigator anyway, but, um, he didn't get fired over this, but I think he should have. Yeah. He eventually got fired for something else. So, yeah. Something similar. Something really bad. Yeah. Oh, 
Well, let's move on to the next story. <laughs> that was an emotional roller coaster. I'm like, whew. Um, so tell me about, you, were, you just had a recent uh, vehicular homicide. We did. This was a, a very sad case. Um, but I, I'm also thankful for the result. My client, 33 at the time, uh, was driving in, um, in Lee County is where this happened with her daughter. And she, this, the, you got to understand, it's like, a, I don't know if you've ever been on like Lehigh Acres, but it's one of these two lane roads with like a broken yellow. Mm. So eastbound, westbound traffic like that. And you can pass in the oncoming lane because it's a broken yellow, you know, and overtake the car in front of you. Florida craziness. Florida craziness, that sort of thing. And we, and, and it's always scary when you do that. And, and most of us, you know, you, you got it because you want to get out of the oncoming lane as soon as you can to get back into your lane or whatever. And that's exactly what happened here. So there was two cars on the road. My client and this other car in front of her, she went to pass that car. The speed limit's 45. She got up to 78, was slowing down, um, and she was approaching an intersection. The intersections are controlled by stop signs. It's a grid. So she's on the main road. She has the right of way, and she's just driving straight, right? Then it's a clear day. There's no, nothing weird about the conditions. It was totally um, normal. It's light out still. And she knows that all the roads that she's coming up to are controlled by stop signs because they are. Those are like the secondary, they're, you know, roads. Yeah. Speed limit on them is like 25 or something like that. So she's on the main thoroughfare. But she is speeding. And another car comes out right in front of her. As she was slowing down, um, she never saw the car. They apparently didn't see her. And they didn't stop at the stop sign. Uh, mm-hmm. So she slams on her brakes, but it was way too, it was too late. 0.2 seconds before the point of impact. She slams on her brakes. Oh my God. You know, um, it was obvious that we, they, it, this is kind of interesting. We have like black boxes in all of our cars and we don't know it. So before, like, like an airplane. Yeah. So before a terminal event, which is usually the airbags being deployed, there's five seconds of data on like everything that's happening with your car. What seatbelts are plugged in, what the engine throttle percentage is, how far down the pedal is, uh, what your speed was, what your RPMs are at negative five seconds all the way to time zero it, on like every car after like 2000. I learned wow. that in this case. I didn't know. So in this case also 20 depositions ongoing, really big deal. But the point is she slams on her brakes, but she just hits them and it's a T-bone. And it's a family, and it's a husband and a wife and a four-year-old boy, and they all die. Oh, my God. Yeah. The cars go out of control. The one spins off to the side. Hers goes far down the, the road. Her She uh, <clears throat> was ultimately fine. The daughter, you know, she was sore and stuff, but, like, no, it doesn't matter in the scheme of things. These other people did. Yeah. Yes. The daughter broke her pinky. No one cares. So my client... Freaks out. She gets out of her car, runs to try to render aid. And by now people have gathered and, um, a, a neighbor came out and consoled her and just grabbed her and really didn't let her go up to the car. Other people, she, she was asking if someone called 911. He said, yes, it was really, really tragic. Mm-hmm. So the way I looked at it, so they charged her with three counts of vehicular homicide. Now, depending on which County this happened in, I've noticed would depend on whether she was charged. I think this was an accident. And there's the reason I think that isn't because I just think that. There's no. lots of case law that talks about, okay, what is vehicular homicide? There's jury reference on this. Yeah. And was an accident. And speed alone, which is exactly what we have here, her, her, her crime was speeding, right? On a road that she had the right of way on, by the way, 
and the other people did not have the right of way. In fact, in, it came out in testimony that if they had survived, they probably would have received a citation for running a stop sign. Mm-hmm. So, but they did die. So now all of a sudden it's like everything's on her, right? And so the question is, is speed alone enough to sustain a conviction for vehicular homicide? There's all kinds of conflicting case law out there. Mm. But in, in that jurisdiction, the answer is absolutely not. So it shouldn't have been brought in the first place. And I mean, if we are honest with ourselves, who among us haven't sped, you know, it's very rare to meet somebody that hasn't been involved in a car accident of some sort. Yeah. That's, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's what you have. You have a person committing a traffic violation by speeding and another person committing a traffic violation by not stopping at a stop sign and the accident happened. But this one was a particularly tragic one. Does it rise to the level of 45 years in prison? Mm. Yeah. I mean, there's people do a lot worse. <clears throat> I'm just saying it was an accident. Like, yeah, it, 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 it's not, doesn't take away from the tragic loss of life. No. Should this be a civil lawsuit? Yeah, absolutely. That's where I think it's more appropriate. But is it a crime? And so that became a question. And so the state believes, yes, it was crime. It was a serious one. And they went, I mean, their offer was a, a lot of prison. It wasn't 45 years, but it was a lot of prison. If we would have lost that trial, she would have been looking at, I think it was a minimum of 27 wow. years. And a maximum that's of crazy. 45. Yeah. yeah, because that's three people died. I know. Well, that's why. It's like there's actually points that you add for death on like, they're each punishable by 15 years, but then there's like a score sheet because there's death once and there's three of them. It's, it would turn out to be like a minimum of like a lot, like the rest of her life. Yeah. Too. And there wasn't a day that she talked to me about this where she didn't just start breaking down and crying. Oh, Not because she was about the jail. I mean, she just constantly like the, the weight of this case over for like three years and realizing her contribution to this accident and they did die. Yeah. And it was, she's just. Most people are good people. I, I, no one, I don't think anyone thinks that she intended for this to happen. Yeah, exactly. Right? So this went on, uh, you know, COVID happened in the middle of this one too, through it for a loop. Finally, we were able to, after taking all the depositions and doing all, like just a ton of work up on this case and interviewing experts and everything else, judge said, we're right, we're back. We're having this trial. Are you ready? And I said, yeah. So we ended up having this trial a month ago. And it was a real trial, like a jury trial, like as if COVID didn't happen. Um, you know, the, the whole nine yards. Um, we had ultimately we picked six jurors, two alternates. And my theory, their theory was, look, we've only got three elements to prove to you. One, that the victim is dead. Two, that the death was caused by the operation of a motor vehicle by this defendant. And three, that the operation of the motor vehicle was um, done in a reckless manner, likely to cause death. That's it. That's all they've got to prove. Now, reckless, that's, that's the law. Yeah. Reckless is defined by willful and or wanton. Willful has a definition. Intentional, knowing, purposefully. Wanton means with a conscious disregard for the safety of persons and property. So that's where I was living on the theory of like, this is why it's an accident because it wasn't willful or wanton. You know, it was speeding, but certainly is speeding on a straight road likely to cause death? It's not. It's just not. Like our cars go fast. Right. It only becomes a dangerous situation depending on the circumstances surrounding the speed. Right. So then we've got to look into her mental state and was her speeding at that time, at that moment, under the clear conditions, knowing that the other streets were governed by stop signs. Is that enough to be willful or wanton recklessness likely to cause death? And I prayed a lot about this. I mean, I was praying in the courtroom, you know, because that was that's that's and I, I went to the from the beginning of jury selection, I told them I'm not going to BS you. I'm not going to sit here and say it wasn't her or driving. I'm not going to say they died from some other cause. 
I'm going to say this was an accident because it was. And I, I really felt like I needed to get the jury to trust that I wasn't going to BS them. Mm-hmm. And look, this is just tragic all around, but it isn't criminal. And that, that was our theory of the case. This was a, I mulled over so many, but ultimately came to this, even though it sounds so simple. This was a tragic accident, but not a crime. That's right. It, and and I'm like, I'm like, you're going to hear their evidence. It was the state's evidence. It's the state's witnesses for the most part in this yeah. case. I mean, even some of them are like, I, I speed like one of the, the their main experts said it's reasonable for someone to speed up to overtake a vehicle on a two lane broken yellow road. I mean, yeah. it's what we do. I mean, yeah. is it responsible? Maybe not. Uh, is it the best thing to do always? Maybe not. It, could you be a little bit more patient? Maybe go a little slower. Sure. But is it vehicular? Is it criminal to like actually like do what the law says you can do? I mean, yeah. turns out actually, by the way, PSA, don't do it because it's actually, you're not allowed. You're actually not allowed to go more than the speed limit, even in that scenario. Oh, wow. So it's really for like, if someone's going like 20 in yeah. like a 50 and you can speed up to 50 like a tractor or, or something. Yes. It's not what we all thought. That's interesting. Yeah. So. But anyway, so it, that, that was a, that was huge. I mean, there was a lot of things that happened in that case where, uh, the state was just really, they, they, they were stopping at nothing. I mean, they really were taking this seriously and, and going a whole lot and it's their job. But I just think it shouldn't have been prosecuted in the first place. Yeah. So I was, I was pretty, like, I was just kind of mad. Yeah. Like the whole time. So I'm like, yeah. Taking her life doesn't give these three people their lives back. It's like not, nothing's going to fix this no. tragedy. And, and it's not, it's not like she's going to go to do that ever again. Right. And, and it was, and, and, and under these circumstances, it wasn't. I mean, there's case law out there where people are like drag racing at like 100 miles per hour, like through oh, traffic, yeah. and then someone gets clipped and it's a pole, and it's like the appellate courts are struggling with it. Like, maybe it's recklessness? But they ultimately, on that case, they said it was. You know, but I mean, it's, it's really, it's got to be something egregious. The case law even says it can't be mere negligence in operation of a motor vehicle can't be just a rig- that's how there's all stuff about well is speed alone enough and majority of the cases say no yeah but yet they prosecuted it anyway so and then there was these horrible pretrial rulings where the judge said that we weren't going to be allowed to even talk about the fact that they ran the stop sign that that was a world we lived in for about a year and a half oh my god really yeah yeah i mean that's because pretty of relevant. the statement i agree <laughs> and the judge ruled against us so then i had to appeal that i it, it was another extraordinary writ and the appellate court heard it, but then ultimately dismissed it saying, let's see what happens at the trial level. But then the next, they said it was, it wasn't ripe yet, but they basically said, we're paying attention. And that same week they issued a opinion on point. This, this is the second DCA now, a different oh, part of the state. Yeah. They issued an opinion that was on all fours with our case and they knew they were going to do it. So that ended up changing things. So at, at the trial, I, I, I said, we have this appeal. I understand it's not ripe yet. But here's this new case that they came out with, like, the next day. That is, they knew they were going to do that, so it totally stopped to us. And the judge, to his credit, did the right thing. He was like, this is totally right. So he allowed that in. And actually, the judge ended up handling this case really, really well after that. I, I, I thought I really appreciated him. I, I liked being in front of him. That's good. I think he made some good rulings. But for, like, a while there, we weren't even going to be allowed to talk about the stop sign. That's crazy. The fact that the stop sign existed. Basically, the argument was they're not the ones on trial. So the actions of the victim aren't relevant to vehicular homicide unless the sole proximate cause of the accident. But it's like, well, who gets to determine that? Yeah. It, ultimately, the case law says it's up to the jury to determine that, so they get to hear the facts of the case, especially in a reckless driving vehicular homicide case 
where the facts of the accident are so intensely important. Yeah. Like every little thing. Everything. Because it goes to her mental state and whether under those circumstances she was acting recklessly. Yeah. But anyway, I feel like I'm in like a like a twilight zone yeah. over there half the time because I'm like, I can't even talk about the other car. <clears throat> if the other car isn't relevant, did people even exist? Because what are we going to do? We're going to argue to the jury some incorrect inference that, in fact, they did stop at the stop sign, which isn't even true because we're just not going to talk about it. I'm like, where's the rabbit hole end? Yeah. Maybe there wasn't a car. Maybe my client was just speeding, and next thing you know, there was an accident. We're not sure how, and people died. I mean, if you take them out of it, yeah, it made no sense. So the judge ultimately made the right call. But the state was arguing, well, no, can't talk about that. I mean, that's... I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Well, it's, it just seems like from the state side, it's like it, they're just trying to win to try and win, not be good, not make sense, right? I I, I, I had my thoughts on it, but, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what their motivation yeah. was. I just think it should never have been. I think this case shouldn't have been brought. No, no. Um, so thank God they acquitted her vehicular homicide. Um, there was a lesser misdemeanor that they found her guilty of, which made sense. No, it was, you know, and okay. Um, they did, uh, for anybody watching that's a little upset, like the three people died, they did take your license. And okay, right, that, that result makes sense to me. Yeah. But to put her in prison forever. No. On an accident doesn't. No. But yeah, so she was, I'm very thankful for that. So she was acquitted. Wow. And what was that like when that happened? Um, that's still ongoing. We're still processing that whole thing and working through it. She is, um, she's a, she's a great client. She's thank She's, she's the client you want. She's thankful for her life. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Wow. Jeez. These are intense stories. <laughs> I, we I wanted to talk about trial work. Right? I know. I, well, these are, I, they're fantastic. <laughs> I'm just like, wow. Um, so, if someone does, hopefully no one watching this needs your help, but if someone does need your help, how do they get a hold of you? Sure. It's Pinella Law Firm. It's my last name. P-A-N-E-L-L-A lawfirm.com. Awesome. Absolutely. And we're on all social media, same thing. Yeah. All throughout Orlando, obviously throughout Central. Yeah. We're, we actually practice throughout the state, depending on the case. Like I said, that one was in Lee County. Yeah. Um, yeah. Certainly look us up just from Pinella Law Firm in any of the platforms or on our website. Awesome. Well, Mike, thanks for sharing these stories. It's been fantastic. It's been awesome talking to you. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. Yeah, my pleasure. And thank you all for uh, watching Mike and I. It's been Iron Garlic and True. True Law Stories has been brought to you by VideoCaseStory.com. Testimonials stink. No one wants to watch a testimonial or read a case study. You need Video Case Stories for your business. Go to VideoCaseStory.com to learn more.